and welcome to Global Digital Futures Podcast, brought to you by SOAS Coding Club. I'm your host, Chipot Mapondera, and you're listening to SOAS Radio. This week, we are speaking to Griff Ferris from Big Brother Watch on exactly who should have the right to watch over you. Big Brother Watch aims to expose and challenge threats to our privacy, our freedoms, and our civil liberties at a time of enormous technological change in the UK. Their work includes research around facial recognition and biometrics, access to communications data, and digital surveillance. One of their most recent campaigns, hashtag free speech online, focuses on the risks of censorship online. Hi Griff, thanks for joining us today. Just to give you a little background, I attended an unbiased workshop here at SOAS and the work of Big Brother Watch came up in a few discussions. So can you tell us a bit about some of the key projects that the organization has been working on recently, focusing on surveillance? Hey, sure. So the judgment in a case that we were involved in in the European Court of Human Rights was handed down in September. And that was a case that concerned mass surveillance by both the UK and the US government. We were specifically focusing on the UK government because we're a UK focused organization. That was a case which started as as far back as 2013 after Edward Snowden's revelations around the uh, mass communications surveillance that was going on. And alongside a, a number of other UK and US organizations from the Middle East, there was a, an Egyptian civil rights organization. That judgment came to, came through in September. Um, it was kind of technical. It was kind of a bit of a win, but not really. And because UK surveillance laws are now much more entrenched than they were in the law, even in 2013, that kind of challenge is ongoing. Liberty, human rights organization, are challenging the Investigatory Powers Act. And so that case had some re- relevance. We worked on it a lot. Some of it got very technical because as the systems being used are quite technical and the way the law is framed is very technical, I think, to put people off and keep them away from getting involved in it. I mean, that might sound a bit conspiratorial, but it does. So we had that case. We started actually another legal case in the UK in May about live facial recognition, which is a lot more tangible than mass communication surveillance. That's about UK police forces using live facial recognition cameras at public events in the UK to identify people. It's pretty intense. You know, it treats our faces like ID cards. It creates a facial biometric of our faces, compares us against criminal databases. And really worryingly, it's been used against people with mental health problems. This time last year, Remembrance Sunday, it was used against a watch list of around 100 individuals who were known to the police to have mental health problems, but who weren't wanted for any crimes. It's been used at Notting Hill Carnival twice. It's not been used twice at any other place, which is mm. obviously raises concerns over a bias. So we launched a, a case against the Metropolitan Police and the Home Secretary in May against that technology. And that's ongoing, sort of we're gathering evidence. They trialed it. What they call a trial is actually basically deployments of this technology. And I'm sure they're trying to test it out to see its limitations. And it has proven to be extremely limited. The inaccuracy rate has been over 90%, 95% in some cases. So that's 95 and 100 people being misidentified. And once you get misidentified, your photo then gets stored by the police for an uncertain amount of time. So there's kind of like a whole raft of issues around that, not just the kind of the surveillance aspect. It's also, you know, uh, collecting people's images. It's targeting minorities. It's it's targeting vulnerable people. We launched a campaign to protect free speech online. Whilst there's obviously very serious issues with hate speech online and certain communities, vulnerable people being targeted by hate speech online. So we launched a campaign to try and cut through. There's a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of people saying saying very contrasting things about that. We're trying to, to campaign for, for human rights, international human rights standards to be brought in on any, any new laws or regulation that occurs in relation to the internet. And we've got some ongoing investigations in relation to the use of artificial intelligence, the 
use of algorithmic profiling systems by councils, by the police, and a campaign which we just launched just this week about uh, digital evidence, the um, intrusive access of rape victims' data in criminal investigations. Mm-hmm. So that sounds like quite a lot. It doesn't always feel like that much, but that's what we're doing. A lot, and all very interesting. You were talking about the use of facial recognition technologies and how data is stored and where it's stored and how long it's stored for. I'd like to go into maybe more detail about that. Who are some of the specific bodies using these means of surveillance? Because it's easy to make a blanket statement, probably because as a public, we don't fully understand. How does, say, HMRC use surveillance? How do the police use surveillance? What other bodies are using these tools and what do they do with that data? When you say this is being used, in what way? Yeah, I guess it can be sometimes quite intangible. There are lots of different government bodies that are around. So I guess when it comes to like mass communication surveillance, which is the mother of everything, because that's that's where most information is being collected. Government communications headquarters, GCHQ, alongside MI5, MI6, the people that, that, that you almost don't think are real because mm. you know they they're just they're in the spy films, but they you know they're very much there. And what they're doing is uh, the the programs which are legitimised under the Investigative Powers Act are such that they tap into the communications cables that run under the sea, say, between the US and the UK, and they basically just intercept, you know, vast amounts of our calls, texts, emails, Facebook messages, you know, everything that they can get their hands on, everything that goes through these communications networks. Those are the databases which we kind of only really found out after Snowden's revelations. What what we do know is just the tip of the iceberg. Using that information, they built a database. One of them was called Karma Police, which was a profile on every single visible internet user. That's the kind of like the power of having all all that information you can literally build a profile of, of every visible internet user. In other senses across government, HMRC, they've been taking and storing people's voice prints. So when people have been calling up and trying to do their tax returns, they've been kind of coerced into giving their voice to be their like biometric password. So all of our voices have like distinct pitches and sounds and, and they can obviously be recognized by a system. And people have mostly unknowingly, when calling up HMRC to do tax stuff online, have, have been coerced into giving their voices. And so they have a database of, I think around 5 million people's voices um, and it, it can sound like really boring or it's like HMRC they're just doing tax and, but HMRC are often thought of as like the third or fourth intelligence agency because they have so much information on our financial details you know where we live yeah. what we, where we work you know they have they require so much information yeah. to tax us the fact that they have that without many people's knowledge and the fact that they have that without nothing stopping from handing that over to another government agency lots of government departments have information on us you know for example like the NHS mm-hmm. or the Home Office for Immigration Purposes in the last few years, a lot more has come out about the kind of data sharing agreements between government departments. I think it was last year, it was re- you know, revealed that there was this data sharing agreement between the NHS and the Home Office, which meant ultimately that people were afraid of going to access healthcare services because they were afraid that the Home Office might know. So people with undocumented migrants or people who weren't sure about their status, who were too afraid to sort of obviously go and access healthcare, which is, is, is extremely worrying. Liberty actually won a, a legal case about that, I think just in the last, last couple of weeks to stop that data sharing, which is obviously really positive. So you've got lots of government departments sharing information. Say the police have their own massive databases, which include everything on people who've been arrested. It includes intelligence on crimes committed. They have a large database of images. So anyone who's ever been arrested, uh, they have their, their image, custody image taken. That's around 20 million people's images. Wow. And that's that's just going up and up. And, and it's estimated there's hundreds of thousands of innocent people's images on there because if you get arrested but not charged, mm-hmm. or if you get charged but found innocent, your image stays on there. There's nothing to 
stop it. It doesn't get deleted, unlike your fingerprints or your, and your DNA, which does get deleted because under the law. After how long? I think it's immediately DNA and fingerprints. If you're found innocent or if you're not charged, it immediately gets deleted. Custody images are supposed to only be there for six years if you're innocent, but there's currently no technological process. The Home Office is actually in the process of building a, a giant database uh, to kind of like merge all of their information they've got and bring it into the 21st century because the systems they've been using are like 30, 40 years old. I mean, the police obviously have a lot. The government, in terms of government departments like NHS, um, HMRC, the DWP, um, the Department for Welfare, have a lot of information on us. And I think the, the protections that guard where that information goes in between different government departments are not as strong as many people would like. So you've touched on what new technologies are and what they mean for society. But what does this mean in someone's day-to-day life? Why should the average individual be worried about this? To use an example from that list, for example, if you've been arrested, as many people have, so you're innocent, your photo will be on a police database. The fact that the police are now using live facial recognition, where they're matching a live feed of, say, a public event, a crowd against photos of of people who've been arrested. At the moment, it's it's often a, a list of people who are wanted, but there's nothing to say in future that that couldn't be expanded to any kind of database that they have. So that means you could have been arrested, found innocent, but you're on a, you're on a police database. You could be picked up by a facial recognition camera just going about your business. In the context of data sharing between government departments, it means that if you're an undocumented migrant or you're unsure of your immigration status, you know, as we saw recently with the, the scandal around the Windrush generation, there's lots of people who have very legitimate claims, you know, whether or not you agree with the, the, the system as it is anyway. There's lots of people who have legitimate claims even under the system as it operates and they were treated incredibly badly um, as a result and so you've got people who have this supposedly questionable status rightly or wrongly and because we have government departments sharing information with the home office that means that people might not be willing to access healthcare services and I think there was an example of someone who this came out during a parliamentary inquiry uh, earlier this year there was someone who was brought to the UK as a domestic worker basically forced servitude and was treated incredibly badly by their employer but was um, too afraid to go to a doctor when they were physically assaulted by their employer because they were afraid they might be deported because of this agreement that the NHS has with with the Home Office and and, and similarly I think there's been a number of examples of pregnant women who've been too afraid to access prenatal care. So there's lots of ways in which you know data sharing might seem intangible but it it can really affect people on the ground and people's lives and and, and the way they live their lives when it comes to accessing services or, or being kind of picked up by the criminal justice system unnecessarily or wrongly. In a recent lecture the question was raised on whether or not government surveillance is a positive thing. And for those who said it is a positive thing, there were arguments that surveillance could help prevent terrorist attacks and other criminal activity, prevent hate speech and extremist views. There was also the belief that if you as an individual don't have anything to hide, then you have nothing to fear. However, I have my reservations. It's interesting you mentioned the Windrush. I'm a minority. I'm from Zimbabwe. And somehow... I just don't feel I can trust the powers that be to act on my behalf. Not because there's anything that I feel is particularly against me, but because even those organisations, they're not representative of people like me, you know? And also it's a lot of power to give to any organisation. So how can we say who can be trusted to decide for everyone? And how does bias play into this? I mean, on the broad question of, of surveillance, the question is about the 
fact that the surveillance that we have, at least mass communication surveillance, is completely it's, it's completely indiscriminate. People are surveilled, their communications are intercepted without any reasonable cause or, or requirement of suspicion. And of course, there are arguments around national security and protecting the public, and, and there are legitimate threats out there. But when that gets used, as it was in, say, the, the, the war on terror, kind of counter-terror uh, laws were used to restrict people's rights under the guise of protecting people or for national security. And, and still, there's a lot of UK laws where there's basically get-out clauses because of national security or, or defence, which are, you know, broad concepts which have some meaning, but they're so broad and they can be used and kind of triggered in almost any way by the government. So in the world we live in, it's government surveillance is a reality, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily need to be a reality in the way that it is. The fact that people know so little about it, it's so untransparent. People have certainly been put under surveillance wrongly and, and, and they'll never know that. The legal method, mechanisms for redress, they're not entirely certain, as we've seen with the, the number of cases that are going through the European Court of Human Rights. They've had to get to these European courts, well, what, you know, what they might consider justice. And, and even then, the government has actually been very slow at doing something about it. So, and, and on that nothing to hide, nothing to fear argument, that's something that we get and we and others, I think, working in that field, we get a lot. It doesn't really stand up when you look at the track record of this government, of, of any government, really, that uses authoritarian methods of, of surveillance. They always affect people, but they usually mostly always affect the most vulnerable in society, which is obviously often minorities in this country. Historically, we've seen the way that the police have targeted people of colour, communities in, say, for example, in, in Tottenham, uh, we've seen riots, you know, almost every decade, often sparked as a result of an over-policing of certain communities of colour. That feeds into the issue of racial bias and surveillance. What we've seen a fair bit of recently is next generation systems being used by the police. So like predictive policing systems, whereby they feed this system with as much information as possible on historic crimes, for example, where crimes are committed in an area. And then the system is supposed to tell them what areas that they should deploy police officers to. So it's kind of like a, a resourcing tool. It's, it's supposed to predict where crimes are going to occur. But basically, if you're feeding this with historic yeah. information about crimes, such as where policing has itself got some got a form of inherent bias where you know certain areas have been over-policed or particularly targeted, then what you're going to get is a kind of feedback loop where police are only going to go to the places that have historically yeah. been reported where there's lots of crimes. And, yeah. and that, just, that just becomes a complete feedback loop where you always target the same places. So that's just one example of, of where, I guess, bias in data, bias in the real world, it finds its way into the, the data that we record about the real world. And then when we use that information, that data to, to Im improve the way we do things, yeah. to try and maybe even people, I think, even believe that it, it's making it neutral. It's cutting yeah. out human bias. Yeah. What you're actually doing is hardwiring that yeah. bias into these systems. And, and, and we've seen that kind of across the board. There's a system that Durham Police is using to predict whether people are likely to commit crime in future. And, and the, the information that they've used there is they've used postcode data, which can often be a proxy for race or class. They've also used commercial profiling data. Probably a good time to, to give them the examples of that actually in this system, which yeah, which is meant to predict whether someone's likely to commit a crime in future. They use this commercial profiling data from a data broker called Experian, which some people have probably never heard of, but some people have. They basically profile every single individual in the UK based on postcode, based on 
information that they can get, which is publicly available. And then they come up with these incredibly discriminatory and biased profiles, such as disconnected youth or Asian heritage. So they categorize, and, and I'm quoting, Asian heritage are extended families living in inexpensive, close-packed Victorian terraces. And it goes on to say, when people do have jobs, they are generally in low-paid routine occupations in transport or food service. Or you have families with needs who are considered to uh, receive a range of benefits. They even give these profiles names who have names like Stacy, or again, I'm quoting, described as multicultural families likely to live in cramped and overcrowded flats with names like Abdi and Asha. So it seems so obvious that you just can't be using that kind of information in a system which is engaging people's rights, which is a criminal justice tool to predict whether people are likely to commit crime. But I don't know if it's a lack of awareness about the implications of that or what seems so obvious and clear implications of that. Issues of bias have been around, but the way that it's being kind of hardwired into information that's then treated as neutral or or treated as gospel, that that is where it starts to become a real problem. And, you know, people are going to have to find where this is happening. They're going to have to call it out. They're going to have to challenge it and and, and get it stopped. But how can people do that? It's a good question. I mean, to use our investigation as an example, investigation into this this system being used by Durham, which was using this, this commercial profiling information. It was publicly announced that Durham was trialing this AI system and there were some academics working on it that published a paper describing the information, how it was being used because they say they wanted to be very transparent. So it was actually one of our volunteers, Jansu, who, who was looking, reading through this paper and she spotted that this profiling information was being used and she investigated it and looked into it more and found the extent to which this was going on. And, you know, we wrote it up, basically published it, managed to get some press on it. And have we, we've been pressuring them ever since to take out this specific data point, this the use of this profiling data. I mean, we, we're not wild about the system anyway, yeah. but th- this is something which like, is clearly an affront to any kind of principles of, you know, the rule of law, of, of access to justice, of, of fairness and equality. I, w- I have a question around how surveillance affects us as people in terms of our behaviour and our freedom of speech or what we feel we can or cannot say. But then as we're speaking, it's also occurring to me that people are quite unaware of the levels of surveillance or what's going on. Do you think there is an effect socially on our behaviour and freedom of speech based on what people know? I think definitely. Um, I think surveillance in, in like many different forms. And there's, I think there's a problem with the word surveillance. I mean, it, it's obviously the best word to use, but it's yeah. just, it can seem so broad and general. And yeah. you think that it's, again, it's about like, you know, MI5 and MI6, but like yeah. you know, surveillance is the DWP, the Department for Worker Pensions, collecting information on people claiming welfare via looking at their, uh, their Facebook accounts to see whether, you know, they are as disabled as they claim to be, you know, kind of thing which creates an incredibly oppressive environment for, for example, people who are claiming disability benefit because there are accounts which have been published about the effect that this has on individuals who they feel so low, you know, they, they often, it often results in mental health issues when people feel like they're being watched all the time. For example, Sainsbury's had an agreement to share CCTV with, with the Department for Work and Pensions. We don't know exactly how it was used, but, the, you know, the, the suspicion is that it was being used to spy on people who were claiming different forms of benefits. And, and that just has, that has an incredibly oppressive effect on the way people lead their lives. It's going to make people not want to, to, to leave their homes. I mean, the, the, there's, there's all kinds of problems with the benefit system as it is, but the fact that they, you know, trying to spy on people to try and catch them out rightly or wrongly definitely has a chilling effect. There's a well-recorded 
chilling effect on people's online communications when they know they're being watched. There's that meme about the, the FBI agent that people tweet about or they make memes about on Instagram about knowing that the FBI agent is watching and like saying hi to them through the, uh, yeah. through the webcam. People know, but people definitely check their behavior, I think. And, and that's been documented. The fact that when, when people, when they know they're being watched, they, they do change their behavior in the physical spaces like when live facial recognition yeah. becomes more widespread. Fingers crossed it doesn't and our, our legal challenge gets us somewhere. But for example, in, in China, where you've got pretty much all CCTV cameras that have facial recognition available on them and, and they have basically these control rooms where, and I know this sounds all completely far-fetched, but this is fully real and you can look it up. There's even footage of it online. They have these control rooms where they effectively are watching an entire population or, or individually they're watching an entire community. Mm-hmm. And on, on their watch lists, they have the persecuted Muslim Uyghur minority. They have people with mental health problems, political distance. At least two of those sound eerily familiar to, to what's been going on in this country. And that certainly has an oppressive effect. Yeah. You know, it makes, it's going to, I mean, that's just, that's an issue with a country that's even more authoritarian than us, yeah. um, which is a challenge. But it's definitely going to have a way on, say, for example, people organise politically. Say online, p- people trying to organise politically has seen a, a marked effect with um, uh, the kind of, the way that internet companies have been restricting certain forms of speech. Um, ultimately, there is a, there's definitely a chilling effect. When you mention China and authoritarianism, I'm questioning if we can say Western countries are more democratic and less authoritarian than those countries that are generally seen that way, those other countries, let's say, given what we're speaking about. I think absolutely. I think that for not much longer will the Western world, the UK in particular, be able to claim that, that it is much more, more free and democratic when, specifically in the UK at least, we are bringing in these kind of like widespread forms of surveillance, of profiling, of predicting, and trying to, to ultimately control the way people act, how they, uh, what they do in their lives. I think increasingly the UK is becoming more authoritarian, whilst at the moment with an example like live facial recognition and, and the kind of the intensity of the surveillance that's going on in China. That's something which we should be looking to avoid, not be looking to look to as an example. So I can't scaremonger and I I think it would be hyperbole to say, you know, we're almost there, but, you know, we can't hold up a country like China and say, oh, that they don't know what democracy is or they're extremely oppressive when we're starting to do or or, or continuing to do a number of the things that that we criticise about them. You mentioned some of the projects that you're currently working on and can I call them legal battles that you're involved in. What are some of the challenges? Are there many groups that are doing this work at the same time in um, in collaboration? Yeah, what are some of the challenges? There are a lot of other groups who are doing like vaguely similar stuff. Um, lots of other really good, well-resourced groups like Liberty, Privacy International, um, Amnesty does some stuff in, in, in the UK on, on this. Um, there's always a need for people who are interested, who are like want to get involved. Getting involved by working for one of those organisations is very direct yeah. but raising awareness generally beyond those spheres because I think you those like spheres of, of about privacy talking about privacy and surveillance they can become a bit insular some of this stuff is not widely known no. you know there's lots of other big political issues going on in the UK at the moment and, and that's unfortunately leaving possibly just as important issues by the wayside you know where people's rights are being heavily infringed and restricted and they're falling by the wayside because of these you know bigger ideological political questions yeah. about the UK as, as a nation and and that is a problem so I like raising awareness is, is, is always an issue be- because some of the issues that we work on and, and others in the field work on are a little bit technical and that's yeah. not to be patronising to 
you know the wider population but it's 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 not things that everyone learns about yeah. from a young age yeah. even the kind of the internet generation yeah. the, the millennials who've grown up with the internet this stuff is technical i'm it, it's be i mean i, I work in it and i wouldn't yeah. profess to know everything yeah. at all you have to get your head around this stuff so there's definitely a need for people who have technical know-how and yet also want to try to do something positive yeah. also yeah the fact that stuff is often quite technical can mean that it's difficult to reach a wider audience because you have to try and break it down and sometimes it's almost next to impossible to do that because you just lose the nuances or, or the important aspects of what's going on whether you're talking about how a live facial recognition system works and how that infringes your rights and, and how that's going to be a problem or why data sharing between the NHS and home office is a problem or why the use of commercial profiling data in predictive policing algorithms is a problem yeah. so that's a big challenge so like getting the word out spreading the word is, is probably one of the biggest challenges finally I know you guys are a UK focused organisation but I was just wondering as you're at SOAS if um, you know any organisational projects that you'd like to you know mention in the global south they might be international NGOs or might be local I definitely don't know enough because I didn't go to SOAS <laughs> so I don't know enough so Privacy International which is a, an international organisation which has partner organisations across the world I know it has partners in, in Kenya in Egypt in other countries in the Middle East in, in Pakistan there's one called Bites for All I think the Egyptian one is called Egyptian Centre for Civil Rights and they on their website have a list of all these partner organisations I don't work with them enough but they, they are out there they're, they're obviously doing important work and this stuff's only going to become more important as we global society become dependent on digital technology on information you know as, as governments and the, the capitalist mainframe becomes more dependent on information more so than it already is for example in the West but, but you know, countries are going to see technology as an opportunity to, to become more prosperous and and the opportunities you know it has for example I don't know an authoritarian government wanting to control its population via technology it, these are relevant topics I think for globally not just yeah. not just in the west not just in the UK great well thank you very much Griff a lot of um, insights if you want to know more about Big Brother Watch you can visit their website at www.bigbrotherwatch.org.uk follow them on Twitter at BBW1984 and on Facebook at Big Brother Watch and you can also find out more about volunteering um, on their website and we provide a link uh, in the show notes on our site. We also provide links to the website of Privacy International, Bites for All in Pakistan and the Egyptian Centre for Civil Rights Education. You can read more about the topic with the resources provided in our show notes. Big Brother Watch have provided information on six of their projects. So the first is police use of commercial marketing data in predictive AI systems, including racist profiles and stereotypes. The second, UK councils using AI and automated systems to make welfare and social services decisions. The third, an investigation into HMRC taking voice ID biometrics. The fourth, their campaign, Victims Not Suspects, to protect the victims of sexual violence against intrusive information gathering. The fifth is their report on how surveillance impacts and oppresses different vulnerable groups in society and on police live facial recognition technology. Uh, we've also provided links to a couple of articles, both from Bloomberg. The first is Huawei Effect Threatens China's Spy Tech Champion. And the second is Want to Know About Your Dystopian Future? 
look at China. You can find us online at www.soascodingclub.com. You can follow us on Facebook at Soas Coding Club and on Twitter at Soas Coding Club. And join the conversation on Twitter with the hashtag Global Digital Futures. We broadcast every two weeks, so tune in to discover what's to come in your global digital future. Mm-hmm.